This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham. And I'm Alex Schwartz. And this is Critics at Large, a podcast from The New Yorker. Each week on this show, we make sense of what's happening in the culture right now and how we got here. Hello. Hi, guys. So January is a time when, traditionally, many people take steps to live better lives. Mm -hmm. Maybe we're drinking less and doing a bit of dry January. Uh, Not yet. yet. Okay, okay. Well, maybe we're exercising more. No, no. no. Okay, okay. (laughs) Or, 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 all right, all right. You know, maybe we're just living exactly the same lives we were before, but January is... A self-improvement time. Mm-hmm. I think this is a little bit baked into the idea of the new year. Right. Yes. Um, certainly it's a time when we see a lot of articles around self-improvement and the idea just seems to be floating everywhere that this year you could be a new you, a better you. <laughs> and 2024 Q1. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's go. Oh, boy. Well, so I was thinking about this and I recently started, as I was thinking about this, I, I started to think about a particular trend that I keep noticing everywhere that I think has become very big in the self-improvement sphere maybe in the last five to seven years or so. It's certainly been around longer, but it's really taken off, and it's what I'm going to call slowness culture. Mm, And what I mean by slowness culture is the idea that in opposition to the rush of modern life, the bustle, the hustle, (laughs) we should – The hustle. The hustle. Uh We should really be – Taking it slow, slowing down, doing things more deliberately, not packing our time full of various activities and tasks, um, you know, not working with every second that we have. Um, And, you know, have you guys noticed that kind of thing, too, that this is this idea is really more and more part of uh, the culture of self-improvement, that we can be better and our culture can be better if we slow down? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's interesting that this idea of slowness and the sphere of of um of self-improvement, you know, there's something paradoxical about it, right? Because on the one hand, self-improvement is something that encourages us to work really hard, you know, to negate the tendencies of uh sloth, <laughs> you know, <laughs> of laziness, uh, used to kind of to pull up our bootstraps and put on our big girl pants and, you know, all of those things and, you know, get the thing done. Uh, And with slowness, the idea of teaching yourself to become better, quote unquote, in that sense is is kind of like, okay, it's time to take the big girl pants off. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's time to kick (laughs) off those bootstraps. And put on a nap dress. And put on a nap dress. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Nap dress also, you know, the trendy Hill House home, um, you know, kind of prairie-esque a uh, nighty type dress that is, has been popular the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. You know, let's take a nap. You know, so so I I just find the whole idea very curious and ripe for examination. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's 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 sort of 
gotten down to the level. I always wonder, like, is something really a trend once it like reaches Instagram? You know, and I, I've, mm. there are so many accounts that are all about like, did you breathe today? Did you? Mm-hmm. Did, did totally. You, you, know, you could take a nap. You know, you could take a nap, right? Yeah. You know, it's kind of like this almost seductive like. You know your boss doesn't own all of your time. Yeah. Um, kind of reminder that uh, life takes place. Rest is replenishing. And not only is it replenishing, it's like, it's radical, right? That there is a, a sort of political valence to this. So mm-hmm. I've definitely seen this, for sure. Definitely. So what we're doing today is digging into slowness culture and how it became a defining part of better living. We are also going to talk about how a push for slowness is showing up even outside the world of self-improvement in the way we travel and economics. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, as I was thinking about this, I started to wonder whether our culture is experiencing a whole crisis around time, the idea of time. And so that's this week on Critics at Large. We are wondering, in a nonstop world, is slowing down the cure to what ails us, or is it just the latest self-improvement trend that we're being sold? You know where I'm going to land. So, critics, colleagues, friends, if I may. Yes. Mm-hmm. When did it first click for you that slowness as an idea was gaining traction? Uh, I think there are sort of proto moments where, you know, you could f- feel it as a kind of you know, chatter in the forest of our culture, right? <laughs> but for me, it really showed up at the beginning of the pandemic, like mm. early lockdown, when there was this big joke that was like, nature is healing. Yes. Where, you know, we <laughs> because, you know, so much of this has to do with, um, is, a, is a response to an overabundance of human activity, right? What we call the Anthropocene. That, yes. Like, that man's... Uh, footprint is is much too large on the surface of the earth. And therefore, like, us being in our apartments or whatever was like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, New York Harbor is cleaner. Or, you know, yes. like that, that the world is is better for our, uh, on the one hand, sort of nature, the extra, the, the extra human is better because of our non-intervention suddenly. And also we are better because we've learned how to pull back bread, from activity. Pull yeah. back. Right. Bake bread. Get a hobby. Mm-hmm. Not have not be under the immediate yoke of your employer, mm-hmm. on Johnny on the spot at work or whatever. That everybody Johnny on the spot at work. I know. Um, I don't know where yeah. that is. Nineteen thirties. That all that everything is better because. Um, meanwhile, all of us were absolutely losing our minds. But, yeah, everything but, was worse. But everything at the same was worse. Time. But there was. But there was this kind of idea that was sort of take that had to do with time and had to do with. Um, reduced activity, that there was something salutary about this. That's when it kind of clicked in for me. Yeah. I think for me, you know, Vincent, you're saying it as a kind of like, you know, relative positive to the negative of the pandemic, the Mm -hmm. way you encountered the slowness thing. For me, I think it was earlier. Mm -hmm. I remember Mm -hmm. maybe like a decade ago as a young Gen Xer. Mm. I used to teach at RISD, and I remember one of my students – Shout out Ben Kennedy saying to me something like, um, for my, me and my peers, like selling out and hustling is like the new keeping it real or something. Uh And I remember being kind of like struck by it and thinking how different it was from the sort of like cynical slackery attitudes of the generation that I came from. But then, you know, fast forward like five years or so. And those same millennials that amaze me with their joy for nonstop 
productivity and hustle, we're suddenly saying, okay, we've mm-hmm. had enough of this hustle culture. Like the man is grinding us down. The profits and success is being accrued uh, as a result of this nonstop activity and, and kind of like uh, eagerness to merge with the system are not as um, big as we might have thought initially when we were like in our earlier 20s or whatever. And we're starting to get sick of it. We're, we're, we want to slow down. And, you know, and Anne Helen Peterson's, you know, kind of a, a burnout millennial manifesto that then turned into a book that she wrote, I think, was from, I, I believe, 2019? Yeah, 2019, when she published that essay in BuzzFeed. Was mm-hmm. like the the summation of that attitude of like, enough, you know? Right. Like, this isn't working. Right, you're describing a kind of disillusionment process. Exactly. Where this idea that the hustle is good mm-hmm. and we're just going to grind, grind, grind mm-hmm. and achieve mm-hmm. suddenly crashes up against the reality of this being an exhausting way to live, there only being 24 hours in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm with you, Nomi. I started noticing it a few years ago, too. And specifically, it was around – I wrote a piece about self-improvement that came out at the beginning of 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, a great piece. Well, it, I'm bringing it I up. love that piece. I remember reading it and being like, oh, this is teaching me a lot. Thank you, guys. Well, <laughs> I'm bringing it up specifically because it was very eye-opening to me, that piece. Mm-hmm. Like, the piece was about – recent trends in self-improvement, which were all skeptical about self-improvement mm. and a kind of self-improvement based around skepticism to this idea of self-optimization, life hacks, any kind of trick you could use to force yourself to be more productive, to make your time more useful. A bunch of people were publishing books that were making the argument that this is an exhausting way to live. This mm. doesn't help in the long term. This is ruining us all. Maybe this isn't actually the key to a better life. Maybe the key to a better life is resisting some of that. But at the same time, I started to notice that there was a kind of commodification of the reverse. Yes. First of all, these books that I was talking about were – people were kind of shifting from being productivity gurus to being more anti-productivity gurus. But I will tell you guys another little thing, Mm -hmm. which is that pre-pandemic, way pre-pandemic – and it, at this point seems a little bit nuts to me, maybe 2017, 18, I started to get into public napping. And public I, napping? Yes. What do I, you mean you started to get well, into public napping? Well, I don't mean napping, napping um, in public places, which I've been into, frankly, for, for as long as I've been alive. <laughs> um, there was a brief industry mm-hmm. of places to nap. In New York City. Oh, sort of like co-working spaces, co-working but, but spaces, napping. but for napping. Wait, oh, this yeah. existed? Because I've always oh, wanted sure this to exist. I always wanted A place this. to go it in Manhattan sure yeah. take a nap. So, so did I, Vincent. So did I. And someone heard my silent plea. How did I not know? Well. What was it? I now wonder what I was doing taking naps in nap pods so near Penn Station. Uh, Wait, so you actually did it? Oh, yeah. It's like a, a pod? Please tell it. Everything. Okay. I'm so sorry. there were a few of these places, but one – Sprung up near Penn Station. Mm-hmm. Was it called Snore, like SNR? I you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> like one of those like millennial businesses where it's like Snore. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely should have been. I mean, when I first went yeah. there, I went there because I was interested in what was going on, and also because if I could find a place where it felt that I could safely nap, it, it would be great. Um, and inside, there were these bunk bed configurations, and you got one of those little vibrating devices, like they give you at a big restaurant when your table oh. is finally ready, mm-hmm. and that's what would wake you up. 
So you put that underneath. There was a little mat in your bunk. You put what? that underneath. Yeah, it was it was it was it was intense. Um, so that was one experiment in this. And then another was at Casper Mattress. The Casper Mattress company um, had a brief period when it turned part of its real estate in Soho into a napping store. My whole dream came true. And, I and it was, know. but this was so luxurious, Vincent. They gave you pajamas. What? They had actual, because they were trying to sell their products. Like they had uh. this, you go into this nap pod and a woman was sitting in the corner. Were you doing this to write a piece about it? Yeah, but I didn't write the piece because that's what slowness is all about. Not, not writing being, the piece. Not writing the <laughs> resist. piece. I resisted <laughs> to the point where I never filed anything at all. Uh-huh. Anyway, we've now gone far afield. But that is that was one of my introductions to okay. slowness culture. You know, it's 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 such an interesting thing <laughs> because on the one hand, it's slowness. Like what's slower than sleep, right? Yeah. I mean maybe death, but you know, in in the living in the living world, you know, what's But sleep is the most the... Sleep is the slowest you can be, right? Yeah. Um and yet, of course, by virtue of it being part of kind of like a a business venture. Yes. It's it's parceled off. It yes, must be parceled exactly. off by the clock. You Into know? little increments. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, the nap pods, okay, let's admit they did not take over the culture, but there are other examples. Like I'm thinking about the great resignation, the Yes, the, remember when everybody quit right. suddenly? Yeah. yeah. I mean, are there other examples of this that you guys can think of? Well, I mean, I think concomitant with the great resignation was just the I mean, still reverberating cultural change that was um, sort of permanent work from home or semi-permanent hybrid work. You know, first because of a sort of an epidemiological fact that has become a a kind of um, a labor issue, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that um, one of the big cries was, you know, corporations and other sort of engines of the economy, other spokes of the economy, have— requested and required too much of our time. Mm-hmm. And now it's time uh, now it's time to reclaim that. You know, the other way to say great resignation is quiet quitting. Right? Exactly. Like, I'm just, right. I am not doing all of that mm-hmm. anymore. Right. Whatever mm-hmm. that was for you pre-pandemic, that is not the way that I'm going to conduct uh, my life of work anymore. Yeah. So it's one thing to talk about slowing down. How do we actually slow down and for whom are we slowing? That's what I want to know. We'll be right back to discuss it. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. 
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So just in thinking about the way that this idea of slowness or slowness culture has shown up recently, you know, there are a few people I could name. One is this guy, Carl Honoré. I don't know if you have had any exposure to him. Once you start looking into slowness, he Mm -hmm. just pops up all over the place. Um, He had a book in 2004 called In Praise of Slowness. So that's just to say— very early. Yeah, that's just to say this has been around for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, he's kind of on the TED Talk circuit. If you think about how we try to make things better, what do we do? Well, we speed them up, don't we? So, you know, we used to dial, now we speed dial. We used to read, now we speed read. We used to walk, now we speed walk. And, of course, we used to date, and now we speed date. And even things that are by their very nature slow, we try and speed them up, too. So I was in New York recently, and I walked past a gym that had an advertisement in the window for a new course, a new evening course, and it was for, you guessed it, speed yoga. But there's a more recent example that I'm thinking of, Mm. which is how I first really became tuned into the idea that this was a cultural flashpoint. Um, And that's the work of Jenny O'Dell. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Her 2019 book, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy, became a bestseller. I think fair to say a surprise bestseller. Mm -hmm. Um, Her more recent book came out last year and has just been published in paperback, her second book. It's called Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock. So – we have all dipped into these works recently. Mm-hmm. What did you guys think? Did any of, did either of you read Odell in the big Odell moment right pre-pandemic 2019? Yes, I read How to Do Nothing at the beginning. It must have been the very beginning of the pandemic. So it might have been a few months after the book came out. Um, and I actually remember it quite well because the best parts of that book are about time and slowness, I guess. But extrapolating that out, and I think we can get more into this as we as we talk, extrapolating that outward toward, toward the sort of a position toward the economy and toward uh, our environment. And so it, it sort of culminates in this argument for uh, a movement that is called bioregionalism, which is basically organizing your life of productivity and consumption, not according to um, sort of global consumerist culture, but according to the uh, sort of actual region that you live in. You know, Mm. what are the plants? What is the climate? What Mm -hmm. kinds of we all have share this one bioregion, this one sort of climate unit. And how should we live together according to that and and, instead of more artificial boundaries? So I remember visiting a friend um, upstate in Kingston, New York, reading this book and driving down the road and seeing uh, wild sumac on the sides of the road and Mm. like going to um, swim in this pond and thinking like, wow, you know, I should be <laughs> grinding that sumac up and using it to season my food. You know, this very, this like very idealistic and very beautiful vision of life sort of um, away from artificial strictures and requirements and requests that come at us at this pace um, and thinking on, on other terms. That was for me the um, the most appealing thing about that book. And it sounds like reading Odell did for you give you a different lens with which to experience the world in the moment around reading it, like even the way you're describing what you're noticing while you're driving. Right. And maybe, yeah, and again, uh, yes, a a way of noticing for sure. Maybe maybe that's its most clear link to time. But really it was – it got me thinking more about politics than it did really about 
my individual approach to anything. And this is one of the problems of this genre because right. these things are not, you know, when you start to think on that level, our individual agency seems to matter less and less. And although the promise of this genre, as all self-improvement genres is, it starts with you. But it's like, Right. It? It's kind of self-improvement without the self, right? And which which kind of leaves open the question of, okay, so how does improvement happen? You know, towards this episode, I read some of Odell's second book, The Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock, and she makes a, a very cogent argument, you know, that's kind of like what's not to agree with, right? That our lives are organized according to a mechanism that is outside of ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And and certainly, you know, uh, starting with capitalism uh, and the factory clock, you know, kind of like our our time has been extracted from our grasp and has been extracted from the cycles of nature to the cycle of uh, production and consumption. And, um, you know, the, the, the book opens with her kind of like writing the book during the pandemic. And yeah. as she's writing, she's kind of looking at moss that is growing up in, you know, certain spots around her her house and thinking about how the natural growth has such different rhythms, I guess, mm-hmm. than whatever deadlines, say, uh, she herself and, and others like her, mostly everyone, has to, has to contend with. But Alex, you know, I, I, I think too, and, and, and Vincent, to your point about like, okay, so what do we do with this, right? What do we do with these realizations? I mean, I think, you know, it's like in therapy when you ask your therapist like, Okay, but what do I do about feeling this way? What do I do about this, like, very deep psychic problem that I'm encountering? And sh- your therapist might say, well, the first thing to do is recognize the pattern. So I, I, I do think it's important that books like Odell's are bringing to light patterns that maybe we're not necessarily aware of every moment. But then the question does, especially since it's like it isn't kind of the improvement genre, the question is like, okay, so so what next? Like, Alex, I think you had some some thoughts about that. Yeah, well, so this is actually, the, I actually have a question for Vincent because what you, one way that you just put it, Vincent, was that you see the collective worth but not the individual worth. My question is mm-hmm. a little bit the inverse of yours, Vincent. Yeah. My question is, I think I see what uh, to do for myself as an individual, according to the Odell model. And my problem is linking it up to these big political promises. Um, You know, it might help to just identify a little bit about Jenny Odell and, like, some of what she's talking about in her book. You know, she's she's a writer uh, and an artist mm-hmm. based in Oakland. She taught digital art at Stanford for a number of years. She often talks about her students um, and having worked with her students and the stresses that they felt, which inspired her to begin looking at this subject. Um, and she has said that her own work generally involves acts of close observation. So one thing she talks about a lot in, uh, in her first book, How to mm-hmm. Do Nothing, is birdwatching. Clearly, birdwatching demands a lot of focus and a lot of patience and stillness. She talks also about going to a rose garden and just kind of looking around her and enjoying. So I love pleasure. Like, I love it. <laughs> I, I don't feel any What's not to love? shame. I, 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 Protestant work ethic, like, get behind thee. You know, like, I am thrilled to just take some time mm-hmm. and go to a museum and look at art. In fact, once I, I, I really just want to confess on this podcast, I don't know why. I had a really impending deadline, 
like, <gasps> got to do this. Got to do this now. I was so blocked. And I thought, I will just take a 45-minute subway ride to the Metropolitan Museum. <sighs> I will get fresh inspiration. I will take a break from all these mm-hmm. pressures. I will do nothing. Yes. I will do nothing. I've oh, my this. God. You actually did the thing that you're supposed to do. Yeah, but the thing is, as soon as I got to the museum, I had an email from my editor saying, what is happening? Where is this going? And I immediately got on the train <laughs> and went back home. Oh, so, no. you know, oh. it all turned out well in the end. Um, but I didn't get my art fix in. But anyway, I feel, like, pretty good about my own capacity for doing nothing, if I may right. just pat myself on the back for a moment. But... <laughs> There's a big promise in Odell's work, and I think in other work around this, that Mm -hmm. these things have like a revolutionary political potential Mm -hmm. that in resisting the strictures around us, Mm -hmm. we can really change our society. And my question is, like, how? How does she want us to do that? I did not get that. I felt it was a lot of talk (laughs) around the revolutionary potential. (laughs) Right. Of what seemed pretty individualistic. But, Vincent, it sounded like you had the, right. a different Well, it's thing. so funny that we were just talking about um, – as we were talking, I was thinking about the metaphor of all of this that actually occurs within Odell's actual artistic work, which is so interesting. Like I, everybody knows her now as this writer. But the the work of her that I have seen sort of embodies this par- paradox because it is, yes, kind of about close – looking but it's also stuff that it the way it looks it's like collages that are based on google earth mm-hmm. that are like you know wide views of things like that look sort of organic whether they be trees or oceans or these 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 greens and blues what i've seen and and, and i could i could be wrong i'm sure that there's much more but it's this like sort of monster eyes satellite view of something that you want to look of a tree that you want to take shade from on an individual level, mm. right? And I think there is perhaps an overdrawn metaphor to be made of how these books work, um, which is to say they talk at the same time about what can be done on the individual level. Yeah. But also make feints toward the collective, right? Like using sort of anti-capitalist ideas, um, Ideas that have the the note of of radicality, right? The bioregionalism and other things that speak deeply to me and and point to a society that I would like to live in, um, but don't necessarily build the bridge, you know. Um, and you know, thinking about it, it, it's it's interesting to me that it is an artist who brings this to us because I was thinking about like where else have I seen this, you know, in in the world, and like all I could think of was like the imagist poets of the. 20s and 30s like you think about like Ezra Pound Mm. and it's so weird that this also just has like this weird at least in America this like or in in the Anglophone world this like sort of Orientalist leanings of like Mm. oh you know like I read a bunch of haiku and they showed me how to like look at things Sure. Slow down, and it is this or like sort of the like, reverie of opium or something. You right, know right, what right. I mean? And it, and it, it, it is like, about yeah. Let us like recline on a cushion and watch the 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 opium smoke from coming from the pipe, you right. know, as it noodles in the air. And, and crucially, like historically, and therefore not participate in the industrial revolution. Yeah, right. Like I have stated my sort of opposition to culture and society by way of my individual attention. Right. Like this, that they, you're acknowledging both of these spokes, the individual and the societal. But again, on some level, not drawing the bridge between them. Right. OK. So just so I understand you, let me make sure I understand. So you're talking about an, uh, a previous view of this, having this, you know, Ezra Pound, famous fascist and orientalist. Um, have <laughs> Famous. <laughs> yeah. Well, so 
a kind of previous view of this in American society being like taking a kind of othering gaze on Eastern societies and trying to bring it back? Is and, that what and, you mean? And sort of, I I think, make a personal but also political statement about attention and about a, a critique of modernity. Now, if you are pound okay, and you of are— Okay, got it, got it, And got if it. you are pound and you are a fascist, that this is like, you know— That's a double move. It's right a double there, move and yeah. it's like, you know, there is a reactionary way to say, yeah. hey, you know, the work week means that— Women are outside of the home. It's, it, there's like there, it, it goes in a bad way, yeah. but therefore, you know, what are the what are the sort of backwards moves that we can make? What you know, attentional, artistic, or otherwise mm-hmm. that can sort of reorder society in a way that I okay uh, can can mess with. Thank you, know? you. That really helps me understand. So so right. So in in all of these cases, we're talking about a kind of reaction against the way that contemporary society is moving. Right. And one way to react is with a kind of conservatism. And another way to react is with a kind of progressivism to mm-hmm. say this is not acceptable and we see a better future as opposed to like a better way elsewhere or a right. better looking back. There could be a collective revolutionary potential in all of us joining together and changing the way things are. Sure. Right. But then also there's that tension, right? Between, okay, if if we let let us give over to reverie, you know, resisting industry, resisting the factory, resisting the the rat race, the hustle and bustle. But then if we're like reclining on velvet pillows, how are we going to collectivize? Right. So, right. So I think there is this question in Odell's work. Um, there's this idea of like, what is rest for? Is rest mm-hmm. to prepare us mm-hmm. to march onward together? Like she yeah. does talk about Audre Lorde and the idea of self-care as mm-hmm. essential to yeah. radical movements, mm-hmm. to people who are working really hard right. on behalf of a collectivist politics, mm-hmm. needing also to care for themselves as a way of marching forward. Um, yeah. I'm just, you know, if I may just say on a slightly skeptical note. I'm, like, not really getting that from the Odell readings. Like, I kind of know what I should be getting. Right. But what I'm getting paradoxically from both books is a little bit of internet mind. There are so many references packed in these books and so many examples of other people's work. And sometimes I think the examples are cool and I follow up on them. Yeah. Um, But I felt almost that nothing could be sustained, that focus itself was a problem, that Mm. nothing was – calmly sustained or elegantly argued or, um, you know, put in such a way that I wanted to sit with these books for more than a few minutes. Um, Instead, I felt like they were also chock full of distractions. And that was a weird paradox. And I just wanted to go back to my own version of, you know, doing You wanted to finally go to the Met. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In a minute. Is slowing down actually the cure to what ails us? Critics at Large will be right back. Hello there, radio listeners. It's Luke Burbank, host of LiveWire. Each week, we bring you riveting and unexpected conversations with the people behind some of the most interesting entertainment and culture out there today. Plus, we're going to introduce you to great music and outrageously funny comedy. And you get to hang with me and our announcer, Elena Passarello, as we talk about the best news of the week. So please, don't miss Livewire. (laughs) 
So um, my back has been acting up. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> and so I went and got a massage yesterday. Mm-hmm. So as I was lying there um, on the on the table and this woman was a uh, very nice uh, and skilled woman was kind of pummeling my back and trying to help me you know not be in pain I was thinking about this this idea of um, slowness and uh, <laughs> first of all how I was getting to be slow but it was a slowness that was of course parceled you know by the hour and the other thing is, you know, I was taking it easy. I couldn't have been much slower than I was on that on that table. <laughs> but um, certainly the woman who was working my back was working my back, you know. And it, it made me think that this whole idea of slowness is so often predicated on o- other people's labor, <laughs> right, or other people's productivity, um, and and I, I think in general that's kind of like the the idea of slowness. It's kind of a privileged position to be in. Like you're able to take it easy. You have the time to take the time. Mm-hmm. Totally. I think I think that that's one thing that actually helps clarify for me what the potential like political revolutionary mm-hmm. effects could be mm-hmm. if this was more of a cultural value. Um, you know, like one thing Jenny O'Dell does talk about, and I think she absolutely should, yeah. is the labor movement mm. and the creation yes. of the 40-hour work week mm-hmm. and the slogan around the idea of an eight-hour workday, which was eight hours to work, eight hours to sleep, eight hours for what you will. This idea that leisure should be a right, that mm-hmm. it shouldn't just be working and sleeping so that you can work again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, were one in a society that valued that. It doesn't mean that everyone would have their leisure all at the same time. Maybe someone would be working to give you a massage, but mm-hmm. clearly we'd all be on more equal yeah. footing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one thing that Odell mentions is the uh, the sort of the, the philosopher Joseph uh, Pieper. I might be saying that wrong, but um, that uh, you know, I think the uh, the name of the book is Leisure: The Basis of Culture. That you know that um, not just taking breaks in between pockets of activity, but having sort of, you know, true time to sort of like deeply connect with what is human is the basis of all civilization and culture and everything like that. But um, this all reminds me of uh, a book that I read that sort of, I think, has a lot to do with this. It's called Slow Down. It's by um, uh, a Japanese writer named Kohei Saito. Uh, It takes this idea of slowness, but it expands it out into the realm of economics. Um, and a lot of – so the idea goes something like this, um, that in the wake of the Cold War and let's say with the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, there was a moment where we could have stopped – we could have slowed down um, climate crisis, slowed down the heating of the globe, all these things in a way that would not have required – um, a total upheaval of the economy, mm-hmm. right? Um, but we didn't do that. Yes. The, the, the wall falls, mm-hmm. and uh, instead of doing the right thing, we all uh, accepted capital even more ardently into our lives yes. and, and, and accepted the lie that we could have what we want and what our hearts desire, but that this could all ride on the back of the market and, mm-hmm. the, and that mm-hmm. this would lead to happiness, right? Like basically like listening to Bill Clinton a lot. Mm-hmm. Um 
And this has driven us to our moment where now it's it's over. If if you listen to any he he's basically like uh, if you in your life just slow down and or just um, whatever use the right straw or whatever you're a sucker and this is called greenwashing that like yeah. this is just another spoke of the economy trying to tell you that you can be green mm-hmm. and like maybe take one less flight a year and you're fine right right or that you can um, even a have a, even have or, a green new yeah. deal which mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. Um, he calls this process externalization this is how we create what he calls peripheries in society. So mm. the global north gets to have our Tesla and feel like, yes. oh, that's good. But the lithium ba- battery in the in the Tesla yes. is crushing workers in the Congo and mm-hmm. in Chile mm-hmm. and also releasing chemicals into the into the other parts of the world that are ruining other water supplies even as we can say, oh, well, uh, emissions up. are better yeah. in in our country and we're meeting sort of sustainable development goals, all these UN focused initiatives that are again fictions. So what is he proposing because this is all this is all sounding bracingly disillusioning. Well, here's the thing. Okay. Really interestingly, even he can't get away from the issue the the seesaw between huge societal change and individual, and individual action. action. He starts off with a parable. Damn it. I was hoping I was hoping he could. I don't I mean Can I, someone do it for us? Yes, yeah. Can someone can someone come up? There with are that? huge implications. We need a strong leader. Right. Right. And, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, he well, he explores the the uh, the idea of like a an eco Maoism where it's like, oh, mm. is it authoritarianism? He's like, we can't do that anyway. So, he starts off though with this parable. A guy comes up to him after a lecture. He's the owner of a small rubber company, but he cares about the environment. And he says, "What can I do to make my company more in line with all the things that you talk about?" And uh, it's almost like. The New Testament parable of the rich young ruler. This guy comes to Jesus. He says, "What's what can I do to follow you?" And Jesus is like, "Uh, dude, you got to give away all your possessions if you want to follow me." And the guy just goes away. He's like, nah, "I can't <laughs> right. do that." Sorry. This, what he tells this guy is like, "I've said it's it's in my book and it's in my lecture. You have to give away your company to your workers, and it has to become a, a worker owned collective because the only way, forget about like individual measures, the only way <laughs> to end the surety of collapse to and also." actually have our economy stop growing is for is to end capitalism. So every, you know, corporation or individually owned firm would have to divest and, and like give itself to its workers. Mm. That like this would it this would just require again a series of decisions by capitalists to not have a capitalist society. Good luck. But, you know, it's it presents itself in this way that there's a, a there is no way but what he calls degrowth communism. There's mm. lots of degrowth capitalisms that, again, maybe like the Green New Deal and others that promise that there's a, a way between these. He says, no, uh, we have to up, totally turn around this, our society as it happens. But of course, there's no like step one, you know. Yeah. You know, it, it, be, because it's revolutionary and of course, like on some level utopian, um, it's not going to then give you some set of incrementalisms, which is which is always the problem with that this kind of appeal. Well, mm-hmm. did you find the argument um, appealing, speaking of appeal? It's apocalyptic. You can't you almost cannot argue with the numbers that like we are headed towards something awful and everything about our society goes in the opposite direction of what would it what it would take to ameliorate, especially again after having missed the opportunity of say the late eighties. Um it's it's very convincing, and but I still feel, of course, um, 
totally paralyzed. <laughs> well, there's another issue also with this idea of environmental collapse that we're all living with, which is its own it's its own form of timekeeping. You know, how much time do we have left? Yes. Is this pressure that I think many people feel and the ones who don't feel it are maybe ignoring it. And mm-hmm. so there is a paradox. Like one thing I wanted to ask you guys was, do you think our culture is going through a wider crisis around time? Um, yeah. If it is, I mean, I spoiler alert, I kind of think it is. And yeah. I think for a few different reasons. One is, yes, that kind of capitalistic competition is up all around the board because of globalization. And, you know, one even very small way that I sometimes feel this is speaking of time in social media, which Adele does quite a bit. I've been off a lot of social media, not consistently, but one thing I used to feel was, oh, God, the anxiety of waking up and seeing that everyone's already active uh, and, <laughs> and everyone's already tweeting. Online, and, yeah. Yeah, and, and, if, and if you were to be in California, for instance, oh, you would feel that you had so much catching up to do Definitely. because the East Coast wakes up earlier. And, and that bigger feeling of being in a nice way in conversation with and in a bad way in competition with all these people everywhere mm-hmm. else, I think, creates a crisis around time. And then there is this sense of, like, how much time do we have left yeah. on the individual familiar scale of life and on yeah. the bigger the scale of our yeah of our planet? I mean, so, OK, the question was, do yeah. you think that there's a crisis around time? But if we're going to answer yes, and if we're not— Please speak up. But if we're going to answer yes, do you think that slowness culture is helping us combat that on any level, on the individual level, on the collective level? Right. I do think it's – okay. I'm going to say something that maybe will explain my position. There is this – you guys know about this because we've talked about this. There is this – exercise program that I do called the class, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I do online. But the whole idea is that you're supposed to connect to your body and be present, right, while you're doing these, like, physical exercises and not really think about results or about productivity or about where it fits in with your kind of self-improvement, say, okay? So I guess you could say it's, it's kind of part of a slowness Um, kind of uh, push. And I do it, and I've been doing it for a long time, and I don't totally believe it. I don't (laughs) totally believe what they're telling me, Mm -hmm. you know? I don't really feel completely present. I don't really completely detach it from, like, if it helps me lose weight or if it's, like, you know, making my arms look better or whatever. And yet I continue to do it even in my disbelief. (laughs) (laughs) Okay? And so... I think my attitude towards these, like, smaller measures of slowness, you know, take a nap, you know, a leisurely lunch, go for a walk in the park, pick a birding, go to the Met. You know, all of these activities, I think it's nice to do them. I think it's good. I think it's probably better, even though I don't totally believe they make a a huge difference. (laughs) Hmm. And yet I still want to do them. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think I do know what you mean. I don't know if this is the most, like, cogent articulation, but I I just – it's kind of experiential, I guess, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, what Alex was saying earlier about the – well, Alex was saying about what Odell had said about the sort of – this being the initial idea of the labor movement. You know, mm-hmm. that that this is what those other eight hours were for. Do what you will. Do right. what you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, we, it would be remiss to, you know, we, we'd be remiss not to mention that we've 
I think over the last two years or so, lived through one of the bigger explosions of union and labor activity. Yes. I mean, in, in our lifetime, oh, for really, sure. whether it's Starbucks workers, Amazon workers, um, screen actors and screenwriters. Um, media workers. Media workers. Um, that is in the air. Um, I think one of the hard parts about this is that, you know, many of the cultural products that we've mentioned occur within the sort of upper middle classes who, who therefore perceive this as a crisis purely of time. But of course, as we've mentioned, like the real crisis happens downstream and people that really are hurt by it don't think about like their Google calendar. It's like, you know. Yeah. Um, there's no water in my country, in my in my yeah. They're town not going to be like, I'll do the class even though I don't really believe it, but I'll right. still do it. Maybe it does something. Right. And it's <laughs> so I, I, I think it's like um, so, sort of like fascism for me and slowness for thee. It's like I'm going to go on a, t- a TED talk tour about being slow. It's like I'm you know I'm going to be manically active on behalf of a different kind of life that of course I'm not going to live. Yeah, I I gotta catch a plane. I gotta I gotta go report a piece. I gotta go do this. I gotta do go do that. So there's always a, there's always whether it's about class, whether it's about actual actual experience, whether it's about how we address this in our lives. There's always this disconnect. You know. Yeah, Definitely. that's interesting. I think I think yeah. the paradox is right. If 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 you're doing it right, it's not going to be noticed. Um, it's not going to be something that you can build a persona around. Certainly a professional persona around. Um, But slowness in general, I will say, for me, it's about reclaiming an aspect of humanness, just the experience of being um, and not having to make the most with everything we have all the time. And also not about a certain kind of um, exploitative leisure, which I think, Nomi, is a little bit what you were talking Mm -hmm. about, like the Mm -hmm. idea that – Okay, I've worked hard and now I'm going to really play hard. Like whether that means like going clubbing or just like, you know, lying back and letting others tend to you. Mm -hmm. It's – I like it best and I like it very much when it is about engaging with the world to no immediate productive end. Mm -hmm. I think that's very important. And I actually think that is more – I do agree with that. Accessible – than we may think it is. I'm no. not saying it's universally accessible. It's not. But there can be a degree of self-defeating critique where if you say, oh, well, this is only accessible to the privileged few, you know, you want to throw the whole idea out. And I think sure. the better framing or question is how can more people access that kind of sitting with humanness? Mm-hmm. And like one answer might be, if again, if you want to go to the collective action, reinvestment in public spaces. Hundred percent. That's like a great way to think about that. Like right. opening. That's, so, that's such a great point. Like Alex. just kind of making it more possible for more. Can we sit in the in the town square? You know, <laughs> I can love we sitting just, in a town square. Can we just available? look? Yeah. Can yeah. we just look? I mean, yeah. Can yeah. we just look at the fountain? What's What's so beautiful about that, but also so on some level sad, is that on some level we're trying to recreate things that used to exist as a matter of course. This conversation puts me in mind of um, one of my favorite books by the rabbi and theologian Abraham Joshua Heschel. And it's just called— Shout out. Um, and it's just called The Sabbath. And it's well, talking about how course. the Sabbath is, you know, the architecture in time as opposed to the architecture it's in space. It's a palace in time. It's a, yeah, you spend your six days building the world and building actual buildings, sort of 
opening yourself up out into space, you know. And there's a time where you you build your palace in time. Yeah, sorry. Um, I don't know why I'm positioning myself as Abraham Joshua Heschel's, like, hype man I think he, um, I think he could have used one. Of, bum, bum, bum. <laughs> a palace. The, the this sound this of is a palace of time. I was thinking about the two Vincent, and I was thinking about how, um, you know, funny. Right. It's the idea being that in Jewish tradition, you have this built in. Um, so, right, Vincent, it's like that note is both pessimistic in the sense that we've moved far from something that there used to be, but perhaps optimistic in the sense that we may want to reclaim it? Like, I think the idea is... Right. What if I suddenly start keeping the Sabbath? Well, <laughs> this is so what, sick. If, what if we all suddenly started keeping the Sabbath? Right. Whatever yeah. that means to you, maybe do it on <laughs> a Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah. As Maxine Waters said, reclaim your time. Yes. This has been Critics at Large. Our senior producer is Rhiannon Corby, and Alex Barish is our consulting editor. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Alexis Quadrado composed our theme music, and we had engineering help today from James Yost with mixing by Mike Kutchman. You can find every episode of Critics at Large at newyorker.com slash critics. And you can email us at themail at newyorker.com. We would love to hear from you. Just make sure to include critics in the subject line. Your note will get to us faster. Next week, we are going to be paying tribute to our beloved colleague, Joan Acachella, who passed away this past weekend. We're going to be talking about her work, and we're going to be getting kind of meta and talking about the art of criticism itself. I can't wait. She's one of our models. Definitely. A great way to get into that. Yeah, Critics at Large is going large about critics. (laughs) Yes. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast. On the podcast, I ask a great contemporary writer to select a favorite story from the magazine's almost 100-year archive to read and discuss. Together, we delve into the story, exploring its themes, its style, and what makes fiction work. You can listen to authors like Otessa Moshveg talk about why we write. Story, or attaching a story or creating a story, is this inclination that we all have to stop spinning. And you can hear writers like George Saunders discuss the nature of storytelling. On the first read, you accept these things as descriptions and they make you see the scene, but every line is a chance to inflect the reader's mind. You'll discover new favorite authors and read old favorites in new ways. Episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast are released on the first of every month. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.